Hi, and welcome to Sippin' Bitch, a podcast at the intersection of culture and friendship. Serve me. I'm Kat. I'm Renee. And I'm Diane. In this episode, we're going to discuss romance novels, the good, the bad, and the importance of taking stories about women's desire as seriously as men's, all with a nice glass of Riesling. So pour yourself a drink, make yourself comfortable, and let's start the show. And welcome back. Before we dive into this episode's saucy topic, Kath, what are we drinking? Tonight we are drinking Riesling. In fact, we are drinking two Rieslings. I have bought us uh, a Cave Spring Riesling, which is from the Niagara Peninsula, and the back label says the noble Riesling grape develops its fullest potential only in specific areas. And who would have thought Niagara would have been one of them? Will wonders ever cease. <laughs> the second Riesling I bought for the point of comparison is a Riesling called Loosen Up. Uh, and this is uh, a German Riesling. Uh, now on the back of their label, they say, no uber long words, no U's or O's, just loosen up a German Riesling that is fruity, fun, and crisp. To which I say, you're a German wine, stop blowbrowing it. I find it hilarious that the Niagara wine is got a brand basically based on nature. Meanwhile, the German wine is telling me what to do. <laughs> it just wants you to dr- get drunk and relax or that, relax to get drunk. Uh, that's what's going to happen anyway. Have you ever seen an uptight drunk? No. <laughs> Have you met my family? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> Actually, it's kind of on brand for both. Niagara region often promoting itself in terms of its biodiversity and agricultural industry and Germany, you know, telling people what to do. Uh, Efficiency. <laughs> so take a, take a sip of, we're going to start with the Cave Spring, which for people listening at home is a richer, more honey-like shade of yellow. I've already drunk this, so I know what my answer is going to be. Yeah. And it ha- it is ever so slightly effervescent and has a slight citrusy, but but maybe just a little tang of apple there on the tongue. I was going to say it's like an adult apple juice. I appreciate that. It is. It is. Uh, Riesling, if you don't know, originates in the Rhine region of predominantly Germany, but the Rhine wanders. Uh <laughs> Riesling is also a white grape, which is, you know, not all white wines actually are white grapes, I understand. Uh, And the two interesting things about Rieslings is it's uh, normally it's not mixed or blended with any other type of wine. Like, you know how sometimes you might get a a, a Cabernet Syrah mix Mm -hmm. or blend or, or table wines are quite often blended. Rieslings are generally, it's just that grape alone. And Rieslings are not usually oaked. So if you're someone who doesn't enjoy the flavor of oaked wines, like uh, Chardonnay or, um, uh, 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 well, predominantly Chardonnay has a very, very oaky taste most of the time. If you don't like that more acidic flavor, Rieslings are a really good alternative. They pair well with pork, maybe turkey. Chicken, everything goes with chicken. Mm-hmm. I've drunk Beaujolais with chicken. Trust me, everything goes with chicken. Sure. So the Cave Spring, fruity, apple crisp. The next one we're going to try is the Loosen Up, which has a much paler straw yellow color. Is this yeah. my glass here with this? That's your glass. That's your glass, yeah. And that, you'll notice, is both sweeter and yet lighter. That oh. one... Look greener, too. It is. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's a little slightly more effervescent too, and you can really taste the different amount of sugar. Yeah. So here's a buying tip for you. If you're looking for something to go with a meal and you want something dry and crisp, maybe because you're, I don't know, having, say you're having a roast chicken. Dry, crisp white wine goes very nicely with poultry. Go for a Niagara Riesling. If you're having, say, a curry or maybe paella or jambalaya, something with a little bit of flavor and spice, Go with the German Riesling because they're sweeter and they're more likely to cut the sharpness of the food. And they come with bossy labels, apparently. Very bossy, Very labels. bossy labels. Very bossy. Now, if I hop in, we also have some seed lip on the table. Should we decide to segue into non-alcoholic drinks? We'll let you know how that goes. Renee, yes. what is a seed lip? A seed lip is... Honestly, I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it's based on a seed thing. <laughs> Renee... Why did you buy seed lip? I did not buy this. Renee, did someone (laughs) give you seed lip for free? Yes, yes, they did. Renee, (laughs) remember the canned wine episode? No, no, no. Well, this is what I'm saying. We are going to try this. This This is the podcast where I make you guys drink strange things. And it's not alcoholic either. And it's not alcoholic either. So we can regret it and still be sober. Versus drinking canned wine, regretting it, and not being sober. Riesling, romance novels, and strange things. Yes, I feel it's totally appropriate. Coming to you this week from Sip and Bitch. (laughs) We'll be right back. And we're back. In this episode, we're going to talk about romance novels, which is kind of low-key one of my favorite genres to read, or maybe just the kind of book I read more consistently. Since a lot of weekends, it's I've worked all week, I've been writing all week, and on the weekend, I want to read something, but I don't want it to require me to do any thinking. <laughs> and I really enjoy a nice romance novel set in the Regency with dresses and carriages and men who may or may not wander in flowing white shirts that don't actually have buttons on them because that was not a thing. Yeah. I would like to point that out to the Regency Romance Night writers of the world. Buttons were not a thing on shirts for the aristocracy in the 18th century. Noted. (laughs) So what inspired you to suggest this topic to us? Well, I had kind of an extra long Christmas holidays for a change. Normally, I I don't get any time off, and this time I did, so I had a time to do a lot more reading than I normally did. And one of the things that came across my desk, as it were, was an essay on a medium that was called How Romance Novels Could Save Straight Sex by Lauren Ward. Now, I don't actually think straight sex is in trouble, so to speak, but what, what I was more interested in was this essay's subheading, which is, books centered on women's desire taught me to expect more from sex and they could do the same for our whole culture. And it made me think about the romance novels I'd really enjoyed and even some of the ones like Twilight that I'd really hated. And if you look at them in terms of stories where a woman desires something and that desire is fulfilled, romance novels are kind of like superhero stories for women. And if you think about them that way, that could be really have a real impact on changing the way we think about women and particularly women's desires and women's desires 
in terms of what they want or are taught to expect from relationships. If instead of teaching girls that sex is scary and men are difficult, you taught them that sex could be fun and you're allowed to ask questions and consent is a thing. And even what if you taught boys that? Like, we could actually learn stuff from romance novels. There's an idea. And in fact... This is kind of Ward's thesis. She writes, Romance novels assured me I did deserve good sexual experiences. I didn't have to feel guilt about any of it. In good love scenes, the sex is enjoyable rather than transactional. The women are there because they want to be. No one is manipulating them. If something isn't right, they talk about it. They find a way to ask for what they want rather than just hoping the man will read their mind because a slightly awkward conversation is always better than bad sex. And I thought... Wow, wouldn't that be awesome if any of us learned to do that in real life? You mean instead of waiting until we hit our 40s and realizing we could do that? (laughs) That too. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of like waiting 20, 25, 15, 10, whenever, and then just going through that and then realizing, oh, wait, I, I can actually have a conversation about it. But the other thing that struck me As I started reading romance novels when I was a very young teen, because my mother read them, and after a while you simply pick up the books that are left on the floor of her bedroom by the side of the bed. Yep. And the romance novels I read growing up were not nearly so sex positive or so open conversations about what women want. They were more middle-aged men seducing their teenage secretaries. Um, And we can talk more about that trope later. But the other thing that this essay reminded me of is, in fact, romance novels are the biggest genre in North American publishing. In fact, romance as a market is worth $1.8 billion a year in 2018. And this figure comes from the Romance Writers of America. Uh, And that is a market as big as mysteries and science fiction put together. And larger, they tell us, than the inspirational book market, which I guess is all that Christian with the square quote stuff that I refuse to read. I think it's probably all the, and that includes all the chicken soups for the souls. Could be. Novels too, books. Um, And romance regular, and the Romance Writers of America assure me that romance novels regularly top the bestseller list. And so to check this, I went back to January 27th, 2019, and checked the New York Times bestseller list. And sure enough, the number one book in the paperback and ebook list was Turning Point by Danielle Steele, who is still alive. Jesus. And still publishing and yeah. still topping the charts. Oh my God. The first book I read from her was Thurston House, which was maybe 30 years ago. Remember in the 80s and 90s, all the TV movies based yes. on Danielle Steele? Yes, all the Danielle yeah. Steele TV movies. Yes, so I remember that. So here's this genre, this massive publishing market that has an estimated 29 million readers annually. And why doesn't it get any respect? And then I read the last statistic in the list, and it's 84% of the readers are women. Oh, yeah. yeah. That would explain it. I- <coughs> So I got into romance novels the exact same way that you did. Like, my mom used to read them. I think she still does, actually. Not so much anymore. 
And she had like the old Mills and Boone, you know, the ones like the white covers. No, they were no, not even the white covers. They were like the orange cover or a green cover, and they'd be like a watercolor of the couple. In Canada, they were always Harlequin republished Mills and Boons with a white cover and then an oval with that watercolor yeah, in the middle. Yeah, and all that stuff. And then that the Harlequins, they were there, and as I got old, as I got older, I just picked them up and started reading. And I think mom was fine with it. But you're right. I mean, they have changed. Like, I remember those old Mills and Boons. It was always some doctor somewhere in Africa because these were published in Britain. (laughs) And Britain has an issue. Well, only if the doctors were, were missionaries. Yeah. Because I read lots of ones with doctors in the Mediterranean and Italian businessmen and Greek business. There is They're low always key, low key a lot of xenophobia in the Mills and Boons books. Exactly. And then I'll move on to Harlequins and then, of course, the big bodice rippers. And I stopped reading them for a while. And I mean, in the meantime, I was also moving on to, you know, mystery novels, science fiction, all that stuff. And then I did my first degree. And my first degree was in English Lit and Political Science. And that made you want to read fewer romance novels or more more romance novels. (laughs) After you read a lovely big book on Canadian Federation and what it means and whichever province was really mad at all the other provinces at the time, Quebec. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Then you need a palate cleanser. Then, thank you, Diane. You needed a palate cleanser and you picked up a Harlequin or you borrowed it from the library and you read about this Italian billionaire who found out that the secretary that he seduced was pregnant and she didn't want to tell him. Yes, the hidden baby trope. The hidden baby Because, trope. see, when I started reading them, my mom, my mom never really talked to me about sex so much as talked to me about things that would indicate to her whether or not my level of sexual education was appropriate for my age moving on. Your mom was very discreet. My mom gave me the whole talk, and then one day when I was 18, 19, I can't remember, we're coming back from extra lessons because I was not doing well in economics, which is hilarious considering what I do now. Um, (laughs) And there's just conversation. She goes, you would tell me if you were having sex, right? And I'm like, yeah, I would because I don't (laughs) want to get pregnant. I would need birth control. And she's like, yeah, okay, no problem. I wasn't, but there you go. We would have have that conversation in the car. Interesting because my mom... She's a nurse. She looked after babies. I got my sex education start when I was like seven or eight with a little book from the bookstore explaining how babies are made. And I had my sex education and stuff like that. Cut to university first year. My first year roommate had a boyfriend, contracted a UTI. I never experienced this at 19. I've never come across a peer that was having a, a, a UTI. And she was in pain. And I, of course, was naturally concerned. So I called my mom, the nurse, and I'm like mom, she's having pain and I don't know what to do. And so it came out in the course of the conversation. I told her that her boyfriend was over. My mom put two and two together and she said, get her to drink cranberry juice. Fine. I thought that was the end of the discussion. Cut to about a couple of weeks later, I get a letter in the mail from my mom, which was very cryptic. It was very bulky to start with. Cause I was like, what's going on? So what happened? I get a letter with a cryptic sort of like discussion about, you know, you're on your own, you're going to meet people and you're going to have to make choices. I forget the actual text of it. I have it somewhere in my, my apartment. And the other thing that was clogging up the letter was, um, I guess it was like one of those graphic uh, pieces that you get from Cosmo or whatever, talking about the different sexually transmitted diseases. 
So imagine sitting in a common room while whomever is talking at the front of the room and you're absentmindedly going through your mom's letter and you pull out this pull out about what is gonorrhea? What is blah, blah, blah? I was so embarrassed. I really enjoy the fact that your mom busted out the, the 90s Cosmo. I don't know where she got it from, but she was obviously somewhere in a waiting room. She, was, had, she had this on her mind. She saw this thing. She ripped it out of the magazine and mailed it to me. I was in Ottawa. She was in Toronto. She mailed it to me to make sure that I knew about all the sexually transmitted diseases and what to do. Because, I mean, obviously, I was me. I was very bookish. I didn't have a boyfriend in high school. I didn't experience any of this stuff. So in spite of giving me sex education, like, as one should. You got Cosmo. I got a printout of all the STDs at the time, now they're STIs, that I should be wary about. I, always, I have all the empathy in the world for, for nurses' kids because you're just lucky you didn't get an actual pamphlet from the clinic. That would have been easier probably to mail than a folded up piece of paper from a magazine talking about gonorrhea and syphilis and crabs. Ugh, crabs. Anyway, off topic. Things you do not... Actually, kind of on topic. Kind of on topic. What to do when your mom is horrified when her daughter is describing an STI and doesn't know how to, like, educate her. Now, I don't read contemporary romances because I like romances that are a little more removed from my day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. Like, I find... I, I can get too into a book. I can empathize too much with the characters. So contemporary romances are kind of stressful, but I could like text my friend Robin who loves contemporaries. And literally, I'm sure I could find you a half dozen books where our heroine gets sent a list of STIs or has the talk or gets the pamphlet from her mother and is just traumatized because that's not what's actually going on in this point in the story. And she's just like, how can you, that's not, ah. To be fair, I have to tell you, in certain historical romances, which I do read, there can be conversations about sexually transmitted diseases, but somehow our hero, despite being a total stud, never seems to pick up any of them. Which we, we can put on the problematic side of the ledger I when was you going talk to say, about romances. I read, like, I'm looking back and I have one, two, three, three Harlequin Presents novels that I borrowed from the library. I read one in like half an hour because there is a formula to it. There's a lot of unprotected sex going on in there. And nary a rotten penis amongst them. No, never. But, but you do find romances now where they have conversations about condoms. And tests for STIs, which was not a thing when I was growing up in the 80s. And I remember, I just aged myself live on, on the pod. Um, and I remember the first time I read a romance novel with a condom. It was, I think it was a Silhouette Special Edition. And Silhouette Special Editions had red covers and they were racier than the Mills and Boots. Oh, super racy. quite... Quite often in the white cover ones, there'd either be no sex until the very end when they were, like, engaged or married. Yes, or, and and there would be so many metaphors for the genitals. But Silhouette Special Editions would would often have premarital sex and sometimes one-night stands. So when, when the first time there was a condom discussion, it was like, oh my god, they finally caught up with my grade 10 sex ed class. That's awesome. <laughs> 
Harlequins. Exactly. Like the Harlequins that I read, again, they're slight, super breezy. You zip through them in half an hour. Sometimes they don't even have the condom conversation. There's just an assumption that there's a condom. Well, and you know, ironically, one of the reasons why I do like the historical romances in the Regencies is you're more likely to come across conversations about contraception because it was in an era where contraception was not available or un, or extremely unreliable. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. I remember, and I do read um, what do you call it, historical romance and. More often than not, it's a conversation about sponges soaked in things. Vinegar. Vinegar. Also, I understand that is also not reliable. Well, no, I'm pretty sure vinegar is not a reliable birth control. So, I mean, we can talk about romance novels, and I think that these days they're very sex positive, like you said, but there are some drawbacks. There are, and I think think when we come back from this short break, a short musical interlude, I think we need to discuss some of the negatives. Absolutely. We'll be right back. back. So, Renee and I have been talking about what we like about romance novels. They're very sex positive, you know. Well, the best of them are. The best of them are. I mean, we'll, we'll get into, you know, the cons of it. They're easy to read. They're fun. You know, they're a nice bit of escapism. They put women at the center of the stories, and in those stories, the women's desires, both metaphorical and literal, are given real weight, and her concerns drive the story. She's not secondary to any of the action that's going on in contemporary, and I mean those contemporary in the sense of novels that are being published now. But Diane, you haven't really weighed in on the whole romance novel question. I guess I haven't weighed in because I would not consider myself a romance reader. Uh, In fact, I mean, at this point in my life, I think I'm pretty indifferent when it comes to romance novels. But I would say that maybe, maybe it was my upbringing. Maybe it was the books that I was reading at an early age because I was a little bit advanced when I was younger. But romance was never really a genre I considered reading, like, uh, purposely. And maybe because I also grew up in a different era because I'm a child of the 80s, I also, I think, part of me considered romance novels to be, like, girly and prissy, like the way that some people might view the color pink or, you know, you know and I was never... I didn't consider myself terribly girly to begin with, so I don't think I ever really sort of kind of got involved with novels that dealt with romance. I mean, unless you count, like, you know, the Sweet Valley High books. I think that was, like, the one patch that I was like, ooh. And the weird funny thing is, because I was reading all these adult romance novels, I I read, like, three Sweet Valley High. There was just not enough fucking... (laughs) I'm, I'm sure when you start at a level like up here, like why would you come down here, right? Um, and so for this, because I'm the outsider in this conversation, I decided to do a quick search. If I had more time, I probably would find more links. But one thing I found interesting was that when I was like trying to find links to sort of support my not reading romance novels, some of the more recent stuff were like lists of why women read romance novels or why I should be reading romance novels. Ooh. Ooh. But if you were to track back about five years or so, there was one list I came across about why one shouldn't read romance novels. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that that was the time that Fifty Shades of Grey came oh, out, which okay. I think... I don't want to say it gave romance novels a bad name because people who read romance novels are going to be ro- reading romance novels no matter what, but I feel like those books and the, the, the link that I read, um, 
who was on a site called Femme Magazine, mm-hmm. this person decided to, as an experiment, really read parts of the Fifty Shades of Grey novels, but also a series called Crossfire. I know nothing about these no things, idea. so I, I don't know. I, I like, avoided all the bad bondage novels that came out during that time. I think... I, I'll have to double check, but I think I have come across the Crossfire novels. I don't think I've read them. But yeah, they, they, they were sort of, I feel like they were a response to Fifty Shades of Grey, like someone from the actual romance novel, from the romance genre trying to get on that. Mm. And I don't want to give the author's name in case I'm wrong. It's not Stephanie Day, right? Um, let me just see if I can find... I have the specific uh, post up here. Let me see if I can figure it out. Because I remember being in the subway and they were advertising another series by another author. And I want to say it was Stephanie something. Sylvia Day. Sylvia yeah. Day. Thank yeah. you. I knew it was an S name. So basically the poster here was trying to use these two series to basically make the case for... And pointing out all the things that people who don't read romance novels believe are wrong with romance novels. And with regards to Fifty Shades of Grey, I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey were not just bad examples of romance novels. They were bad examples of the written English language. Mm. Those were terrible. And even considering these were novels that started off on fanfic, which is, you know, self-published for no pay and no respect on message boards on the internet, often uncopy edited or even unspell checked, let alone proofread, they were still terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would just like to say for anyone who's listening, if you've read Fifty Shades of Grey and you think that is what BDSM is about, it's not. Fifty Shades of Grey models an extremely poor approach to consent, which is central to BDSM play. And the scenes that she describes are not just incorrect. It can be actually dangerous because the best thing for me about Fifty Shades of Grey were the upteen doms who wrote essays in The Guardian and other places saying, for the love of God, never use zip ties. Never, never use zip ties in a scene. It could give you nerve damage. Don't tie your partner up with zip ties. Never. Exactly. We're getting off topic, though. Back to the romance novels. Yeah. This has been a public service message from (laughs) Kat. So all this to say, I feel like as somebody who reads books when she reads books, I feel like I read books that happen to have romance plots in them, but I don't seek them out. And I'm sure during points of my life, I'm sure I've looked down on people who've read romance novels, thinking that they're lowbrow. Oh, listen, I would not take a Harlequin into the subway and just read it that way. Because there's, I don't know, like you said, there's something... A little embarrassing about being caught reading it in public, even though 1.8, how many? Uh, $1.08 billion a year and 29 million readers. Yeah, I know. And I realize it's something I have to get over, but you know, I'd rather just download one on my phone through the library app and just read it on my phone. I, and shame is a big part of it because I feel the same way. I would never take a bodice ripper on the subway because I'd be embarrassed to be caught reading it. Not because I'm reading it, but I would be embarrassed by what I assume the person looking at me would think. Mm-hmm. And and I think shame and the way we respond with shame to the idea that women can get horny and want to read a smutty book or women can just enjoy romance as a trope. The fact that we find that something we're afraid to talk to in public is really problematic because that does affect how we treat, how we act in our relationships and how men view women in relationships like if you're afraid to be seen reading a romance novel like how do you find the power in your relationship to tell 
your partner what you want. Mm -hmm. That's true. I mean, you just leave the book hanging out. (laughs) I have no idea. Yeah. So I feel like in a way I've always sort of maybe in the back of my mind viewed romance novels the way you might view all those Hallmark movies that come out around holidays and are still playing, by the way. (laughs) Mm. Like there's the dynamic is very sort of conventional and stereotypical and all the things that you said are the reason why romance novels are a good thing. I think the opposite I'm not thinking that they're sex positive. I'm not thinking that the male-female dynamic is on an equal footing, like that sort of thing. Well, and and part of that is because romance novels do have a past. They do. And, and to, to go back to this essay, Lorene Ward, she gives full disclosure on the issues that romance novels have had, particularly in the not-so-recent past. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she writes, in some ways I was trading one set of issues for another. And among the things she note, like notes are... Um, they're very white. The history is extremely airbrushed. The depictions of sex, even though it can be very sex positive, are also consistently unrealistic. Yeah. Um, I've never come, and I've read a lot of smutty romances. I've never come across a female protagonist in a romance novel who doesn't orgasm from penetration. Oh, that's true. But I have noticed recently that the more recent books is there is penetration, but either she or the man that she's sleeping with, because it's generally heteronormative that I read, will actually find her clitoris and help her get off while she's being penetrated, which I'm like, yes, progress. Only took how many decades? Frequently, particularly in historical romances, um, the woman will be a virgin and she'll still enjoy it the first time, which even if you're really loving and committed into it and have good conversation... For a lot of women, that's just physiologically not the case, mm-hmm. as is there are a lot of women who, who can't um, climax from penetration alone, and, and they actually find it very hard to exist in a society where that's like the sine qua non of the sexual experience. Mm-hmm. And there are still so many chest-thumping, furrowed-brow, Neanderthalic alpha males in romance novels. I mean, they, they do... Our heroes do come out of a fairly... Macho. Unidimensional cookie-cutter mold. Yes. So I just realized my brain is completely sponge. I did go through a period where I read romance novels, but they were by an African-American author. I don't think it lasted very long. I need to find the, the author or author's names, but they do exist. It's just that they're a smaller market, and they're dwarfed by the bigger market that's out do. there. They do. It is ridiculous. Like I follow a few African-Americans, specifically authors on, on Twitter, and man, like... And I've actually picked up a couple of her books, and they're really good. I'm blanking on her name right now. I will put it um, in the links. Um, but you're right. I mean, you know, when you go, it is mostly white. Although these days, Harlequin seems to be making more effort to be diversified. I read a Harlequin romance that featured a South Asian couple Woo. in India. Oh, my God. Say what now? I know. They were both South Asian. They they were in India. Now, they were part of the Bollywood scene because Harlequin Presents novels are always full of glamour. But I'm like, (laughs) oh, my God. This is the first time I've actually seen a South Asian couple be sexy. How about that? I mean, outside of Bollywood movies, obviously. Like, I'm talking about, like, the North American industrial complex. (laughs) Well, and it that sort of takes me back to one of the things I said when we started this episode, which is... Basically, this is a genre that gets no respect, despite the fact that it's huge. It's, it's by far, I think, the largest single segment of the publishing industry in North America. And 
I'm always low-key fascinated about what books get shelved in romance, which is off on its own mm-hmm. uh, and normally in a corner, uh, and what gets shelved in general fiction. Because if you were to ask me what was the best romance novel I read in the last year, I'd tell you it was Crazy Rich Asians by Kevin Kwan. Yes, which I did read. I read the trilogy. Yes, I finished <laughs> I, the trilogy. I feel like I'm disproving my own theory, but uh, <laughs> well, but, but but by and large, I haven't read. Come on, I haven't read romance novels like the the typical the, yeah. Harlequin Mills and Boone type. But Charlie and um, Charlie and Astrid. Charlie and Astrid. Okay, yeah, don't tell me how the third one ends because I've only gotten through the first two. That that was totally fine, but Charlie and Astrid. I'm I like, know. Aw. And now to be. There is an explicit sex, but by the same token, Danielle Steele and Jilly Cooper, both of whom do feature sex scenes that are at least penis and vagina specific, yeah. are also shelved in general fiction. So, And writers are pretty explicit. I feel like a lot of it is basically, a lot of it is pretty, like, there's some old-fashioned misogyny slash chauvinism in what books are considered romances, and I'm doing my square, scare quotes, and what books aren't. Um, but I think I think what it is, is like you said, there's some misogyny and sexism, and it just might be time to sort of revisit how we categorize, instead of isolating it by itself, so there is that spotlight where women feel weird about reading it in public, you just integrate it into sort of the rest of the library, rest of the bookstore. I wonder maybe that's why I feel like I haven't read romance, but in actual fact I have. It's just been in general fiction. Yeah. And as I said before, like I tend to write, read books that happen to have romance as a plot, but not necessarily um, label themselves a romance novel. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it, too, is the tropes. Like, like Crazy Rich Asians is, is a, many things that are new and unique. But it's also my favorite retelling of Pride and Prejudice that I've read recently. It is, isn't it? It is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice. I never read it, so I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> but if you watch the movies, you're fine. <laughs> but also, it's, and I think the other thing is, it, it even though Kevin Kwan got a lot of publicity for being an Asian American author, I think his book was treated a lot differently because he was a man versus. Say, uh, another book I read, which I feel a little bit bad because it was my second favorite uh, retelling of Pride and Prejudice that I read this year called Aisha at Last. Mm, yeah. Um, That's on my list to read. By Uzma Jalaluddin. Yeah. Uh, and it's a retelling of Pride and Prejudice featuring two observant Muslims set in Scarborough. So yes. it's, she's a hometown hey. girl. Scarborough. What? <laughs> Aisha at Last is a beautiful, beautiful, sweet, warm book. It is just delightful. It lacks the batshit factor of Crazy Rich Asians, which which just pushes Crazy Rich Asians over the top, Just but just, like, by a gold chain. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel that, that Uzma Jalaluddin didn't get that kind of push because, A, she's a woman, and... and for a woman writing a novel with romance themes, you get slid into that other category, despite all the good things that romance is doing right now. Mm-hmm. And it it's sort of, you know, whenever you see that kind of ghettoization, it's concerning because I think that idea that women's desires are central to the story and need to be taken seriously is a lesson that society really needs to take to heart. 
Exactly. All right, we're going to wrap this up, um, but we'll be right back with our sort of closing and final thoughts. So that was a pretty good discussion. Um, did we learn anything from it? Apart from romance novels are great, but choose them wisely. I think that's a good thing to learn. I mean, as much as I laud the the sex positivity and the centering of women in the narrative and treating their wants and desires on all levels is important, I think we've established that, that you don't want a romance novel to be like your core guide for sex or sexual health. Okay, so speaking as the lone person who kind of dabbles in and out of romance without really knowing it, so as somebody who wanders in and out like a random at a party, <laughs> how are there any authors, if I were to say tomorrow, you know what, I should, I would consider maybe reading a romance novel or two. Are there any you would consider not reading or any series or trilogies or authors that you recommend highly for the novice to stay away from? I would say, okay, um, I haven't read any historical novels recently and I just read Harlequin Presents, which is, they're getting better, but they're problematic. Um, I would say kind of avoid anything more than 10 years ago. It's not the best idea to go back into the back canon because I, the thing that's interesting about romance as a genre, particularly if you've been reading it over time, mm-hmm. is the way the mores in the books tend to reflect the contemporary mores, even if they're maybe three to five years behind. Exactly. Like, for example, in the, and this is a stretch, I realize, but in the do not ever touch these with a 10-foot pole, Beatrice Small, <laughs> Kathleen um, Woodwiss. I would recommend just avoiding Joanna Lindsay and Susan Johnson, which are still in print, but feel super dated right now. If you're a complete newbie and you enjoy, you know, if you've enjoyed an Outlander, which again, somehow is not shelved in romance and totally should be. uh, If you enjoyed Outlander on TV or maybe you like Pride and Prejudice, but Jane Austen isn't writing any new stories, uh, Eloisa James Mm. has a really good oeuvre. And I would recommend just about any of her books as a great jumping on place. I also like Sarah McLean. Yeah, I've read her. And Sarah McLean also reviews romance novels for the Washington Post. So, yeah. and I know Robin likes her a lot. I like Courtney Milan. Not as much as Robin does, but she's also hilarious on Twitter. And yes, this is this is my friend Robin, who we referred to earlier. And Courtney Milan gives excellent Twitter. Courtney Milan also clerked for. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. There we go. So she was a lawyer, uh, continues to be a lawyer, but I don't think practices too much law these days. So romance is written and enjoyed by all sorts of women. Exactly. Um, Courtney Milan's not quite my flavor, which is one of the reasons why it can be hard to recommend, because so much of romance can revolve around sex and everyone's taste in sex is personal. You may need to read around to find what you're looking for. If you're just interested in something super slutty and entirely implausible, uh, I can recommend a book called Passion by Lisa Valdez. It's so incredibly dirty. (laughs) I'm going to go get that one. Sometimes you just want to read a really dirty book. And uh, big ups to the Toronto Public Library, which offers a wide selection of romance novels of all conceivable genres through their EPUB service. So you can always find Louisa Allen, who writes for Harlequin's historical imprint there. Mm -hmm. And I do have to apologize because 
this discussion and my taste in novels is extremely heteronormative. And there is a growing um, number of LGBTQI romances being published. E-publishing has really expanded the type of romance novels, like the variety of stories that are out there. I haven't recommended any because I don't personally read them, and there is a little bit of a controversy in the publishing field as to whether or not romances about LGBTQI individuals should be written by LGBTQI individuals because some of them are written by straight cis women. And so I'm going to do some reading and get some recommendations from the internet, and we'll put those on our Facebook page and out on Twitter for people who are interested. Um, But read, and don't feel bad if you like to read dirty. Dirty is great. So one last question from me. Have either of you ever read a romance novel, or at least picked it up and read it, and then just wanted to throw it across the room because it was absolutely awful? Oh, girl. Regularly. My (laughs) favorite story about reading a romance novel is my Uncle John, who used to read my Auntie Helen's romance novels. My Auntie Helen and my mom and John used to share romance novels between them. And he was reading a romance novel at his cottage written by an author named Penny Jordan. Who I'm super sure is a pseudonym because otherwise she's 178 years oh, old. Oh, she's dead. She's okay. dead. She read, um, wrote so many Harlequins and Mills and Boons. They were, yeah, the white cover Harlequin. Yeah. And he got about 57 pages in, got up off his chaise on the deck, went to the side of the cottage to the workshop where he'd been uh, working on a tree that had come down with a chainsaw, <laughs> put the Penny Jordan on the stump and chainsawed it in half. (laughs) And the worst part was only after he had chainsawed it in half did my Auntie Helen tell him that it was a library book. (laughs) And they returned the two halves of the library book with an abject apology to the Toronto Public Library. (laughs) See, Penny Jordan, for anybody who remembers that author, who I think might have been a couple that wrote it, was prolific and really popular. And you read it now is awful. Well, this was 30 years ago that I, I know, got chainsawed in half. I read, I think I read, I read a few of her books because like my mom had them. And, you know, 30 years ago, you're like, okay. And then you look at it now and you're like, oh, girl. Or guy. <laughs> or a couple. Or, or, or group writing. Or writing group. I don't know. Or non-binary individual. Exactly. This is just awful. This is awful. <laughs> so, to sum up, romance novels... They cover the spectrum of human behavior, from the good, the bad, the ugly, to the dirty, to the really good. Read early, read often, read widely, and don't be ashamed of what you read. And don't be ashamed if you don't finish a book. Unless you read Fifty Shades of Grey, we should all be ashamed that we read that. (laughs) Even five years later. All right, on that note, so that should do it for this episode of Sip and Bitch. You can find us on Twitter at sip underscore bitch. Or on Facebook by typing at pour a glass of wine into the search bar. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please, 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 please leave us a review. I'm Kath. I'm Renee. And I'm Diane. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.